Welcome to a Minor Detail Podcast. My name is Ryan Miner. I am your host. I'm an independent journalist with a knack for the minor details. I've developed the reputation for being a disruptor. I call it as I see it. If you're on the political right, you may loathe me. And if you're on the left, you may hold me in equal contempt. I am sick and tired of extreme partisans ruining our political system, and I loathe the incivility that plagues our dialogue. This podcast is about truth. My job is to get to the bottom of every story, highlighting every small detail and shedding light on the inside of Maryland politics. This is episode 269. On Friday, May 22nd, 2020, Baltimore City mayoral candidate Catalina Burke, a Republican, joined the podcast. We begin the conversation now. Good afternoon. My name is Ryan Weiner. This is a Minor Detail podcast. You can find me on the web at a aminordetail.com. Please subscribe. Subscribe. Subscriptions are nice. The Apple iTunes and people seem to be using, uh, what is it, the Spreaker and all kinds of uh, different applications to listen. Spotify. I know that Catalina Bird, my guest today, who is running for mayor of Baltimore, she probably uses Spotify. Do you use Spotify, Catalina? I have title. I'm a Jay-Z fan. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, I... I'm lucky today and very gracious to have Catalina Bird, who is running for mayor, and she joins the podcast for the very first time. Catalina, you're running for mayor of Baltimore City. You're a Republican. There hasn't been a Republican mayor since 1967. Will you be the first Republican female elected as mayor, breaking the 50-plus year drought? I'm working really hard to try to be. Um <laughs> I've got six other individuals in my primary, some very um, spirited folks, we'll say. And uh, but, yeah, I'm hoping that all goes well. My team and I, you know, we were working really hard. We launched our campaign in August of last year. Um, So we got to build some momentum going into um, this year before COVID hit um, and having to kind of like shut everything down and, and, and campaign differently. But. I'm doing the best that I can. We had a debate last night that was um, interesting. That's a good word for it. I caught bits and pieces of the debate last night, and it was held by the city Republicans. Is that? Yes. Okay. And you were there, and I believe there's, is it five other candidates who are running? There's six others, but only three of us were on the debate last night. So it was myself, Zulika Baysmore, and Shannon Wright. And Shannon is currently the chair of the Baltimore City Central Committee. Right. And, um, and so I caught bits and pieces of it. You used the word interesting to characterize last night's debate. Catalina, what made it interesting? Um, well, Ms. Baysmore is... So here's the thing. I already knew what to anticipate about Zulika going into the debate, because before we had to switch to all these virtual things, she was at some of the forums that we participated in, and she's never, ever, ever um, respected the timekeepers. I mean, she, the way that she carried on at the first CLIA youth-led symposium, the youth uninvited her to the other two of their of their forums. It was a series. Um, I mean, she she just has no respect for the time. She doesn't have respect for any of us as her opponents either. Um, she talks over top of everybody. Um, she and and then she just makes up things. I mean, she, she claimed I worked for Sheila Dixon and didn't fix the school system when I had the chance fifteen years ago. But the 
Thing is, I've never worked for former Mayor Dixon <laughs> or in the school system, for that matter, to have any authority to fix anything in the school system. Catalina, do you think from based on last night's debate that voters in the city had an opportunity to really hear what each of your individual platforms are? And was there a takeaway on how the, the Republicans versus the Democrats in the race would govern? I, unfortunately, no, I don't. I think that um, if of all of the forums, physically and virtually, I think that the best opportunity that I've had to articulate my plan and people to really juxtapose myself as a Republican to the Democrats was the forum that was um, virtually held by Black Girls Vote. Um, and that in the, we were the top female candidates. It was myself, Mary Miller, and Sheila Dixon. Um, I think that's the only one that I would really say, you know, if you're still undecided and you don't know the difference between a conservative and a Democrat, watch that one. Right. I want to talk about your background. You have a fascinating life story. You were born and raised in Sandtown, Winchester, on Baltimore's west side. And the, I made the mistake the other day of mischaracterizing where T.J. Smith was born and raised. And he kindly reminded me and he said, those are fighting words. <laughs> Yeah, we do take that very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> you are a political strategist, a community activist, and you are on the media. You do a lot of interviews, you do television, radio, and you were appointed back in 2007 by former Mayor Catherine Pugh to serve on the Community Oversight Task Force. And you currently chair the Domestic Violence Committee on the Women's Commission of I just I just resigned Monday from being the chair because I didn't think it was appropriate. So I have, the, I have the, a lot of catch-ups with integrity. I didn't think it was appropriate to be in leadership on the Women's Commission um, that is you know, a function of Baltimore city government while running against Jack and all these other people running. So uh, I'm just an at-large body member now, but I was the chair of the Domestic Violence Committee, yes. <laughs> But this isn't your first political rodeo. You ran for judge of the Orphans Court and mayor both in 2010 and 2011, but you were unable at the time to secure enough signatures to get on the ballot in both races. That had to be disappointing. Well, in 2010, it wasn't because, so my dad, who's my treasurer and um, former Republican mayoral candidate from 1995, Victor Clark, my dad had this idea that since I was only going to be 30 when I ran, that I should run for judge of the Orphans Court because I was previously an estates and trust paralegal. So I was very familiar with the job um, that I should run for that so that I could run for mayor as Judge Bird and add some gravitas to my to my my bid to outdo some of the language about how young I was. Um, but we only came up with that idea two weeks before the filing deadline. So we were only like 400 signatures short of the 5,000 that we needed. My dad and I went out every Sunday morning. He hung out with me at the farmer's market under the JFX and collected signatures. I mean, it was a great, it was great. And we got to have conversations about things that I really was passionate about and were part of my mayoral platform about um, unclaimed air property and, and how much that contributes to the blight in the city. Um, as well as generational wealth and understanding um, how to secure it and, and build it for your family. So that one wasn't disappointing. 2011, I won't even say that was disappointing, not making it on the ballot. What was more disappointing is how evident it is that we don't teach civics in school. 
Mm -hmm. Right. I spent so much time trying to explain why I needed their signature on this petition and that it was not the same as voting for me. It was giving me an opportunity to run my race that I never got to talk about my platform. Um, And so, you know, I was raised in the party and I get the question all the time, like, why weren't you Republican before? When I turned 18, we were at war in Iraq. Um, I didn't agree with uh, President Bush's position on the war. And so for me, it was just, that was it. I just didn't want to join either party. I knew I'd never be a Democrat because I'm from Baltimore. I live here. I've seen them run my city exclusively my entire life. And it's not been good for my community. So I just was unaffiliated. Um, And so this time around, it made sense to join the party that I was raised in. And my dad was chair of the Central Committee. Um, He works for the state now in a position he's had since former Governor Ehrlich won in 2003. Um, I worked for Ehrlich, I worked for the state. I had a position in the administration for some time as well. I left and was Baltimore City Field Director for his reelection campaign. Um, Unfortunately, obviously, Bob didn't win reelection. And even when he came back in 2010, even while I was running for judge of the Orphans Court, I was still helping his guys because, you know, both RNC and DNC send people from out of state to come work on races, right? And and they never know Baltimore and they have no cultural competency and it's maddening. So I I did the best I could to help. Um, He didn't beat O'Malley again in 2010. Um, and in 2014, I was happy to support Governor Hogan and still am. But yeah, it's been a whole loopy kind of ride around. <laughs> Catalina, I'm sure that people ask this question and it's a bit presumptuous. And I'm asking from the standpoint of what I hear it in the context of they say you are a African-American female who grew up in Baltimore City. Why the hell would you be a Republican? Have you gotten that question? Oh, I get it a lot. <laughs> Um, so I get it even more so now that Trump is in the White House, right? I didn't get it as much pre-2016, right? Because it was always a long-running joke when I had my show on Radio 1 or when I was on WEAA that I was a closet Republican, <laughs> right? Mark Steiner used to just always like, one day you're going to come out and tell, and tell everybody the truth. Um, but when you look at what conservative values truly are, Right. Small government. I believe in that. I I don't think the government is supposed to be in everybody's business doing everything and they can't fix every social ill. There's some primary functions like infrastructure and education that they're supposed to do, law enforcement, and that's it. Um, So there's that. I also believe very firmly in family values. You know, I'm a widow. Um, I have children of my own. um, And so I care about their quality of life. Uh, and then also, you know, I, I also believe it's very conservative. I'm, I'm a pro Second Amendment. I don't, I want gun reform in, in regards to magazines and, and, and uh, assault rifles, automatic weapons, but I don't want to just like ban all guns uh, <laughs> at all. So, you know, the, the actual conservatism is what has always resonated with me. And I'm a third generation Republican. I, I got raised by black Republicans from West Baltimore. So it, it, it's not odd to me, it's odd to other people. It's what I've always known. You didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016, and you've spoken about how you won't allow the president to define the Republican party 
in fact, you have said that he's not really a conservative, he's not really a Republican, but rather the party, though, is mostly in lockstep with him. But does it really matter, Catalina, what party you are running on in the city? Does it matter what party governs municipal government, which is typically nonpartisan? Well, yeah, because it's not nonpartisan because it's been all Democrats since 67. That's fair. And I do think that it matters because, I mean, you look at 2015 and the uprising, right? Because of a contentious relationship between Governor Hogan and former Mayor Rawlings Blake, you know, there was a disconnect in communication. Kiefer Mitchell gets a a position named the czar of Baltimore City, who has to be the go-between. I mean, we're all grown-ups here. We didn't need to hire a Democrat to talk to another Democrat and then go back to the Republican. We can sit at the table together. And I just thought that that was ridiculous. But I do think it matters. I think people need to see a functioning two-party system at home as much as they do in the country. You know, there's no one party that controls that is all of the Congress or all of the Senate. So why should our council be like that? Why should City Hall be like that? It's not like that in Annapolis. Right. And the president last year, of course, you remember, he attacked Baltimore City. He targeted the late Elijah Cummings, uh, former congressman from Maryland's 7th Congressional District, ostensibly because he was set to investigate Mr. Trump as the chair of the House Oversight Committee. And Trump then called Baltimore City a rat and rodent infested city. How did you receive the president's remarks? I I didn't receive them. Um, I, I was it was very clear to me that he was only talking about us because it made it to Fox News um, because of Kimberly Clasick's uh, tweets. And that's how it even got on his radar. Because um, for someone who says things like that about the city, I mean, he's on his way here this weekend. He still comes. Should he come? Right? Huh? Should he come to Baltimore City? I don't think that he should come because I think that it should be respected that we are still in shelter in place under the order of Mayor Jack Young. um, And that, you know, leadership requires respect and deference to whomever is the leader in that jurisdiction, regardless of you being the president of the United States. Um, So I think it sets a bad example while we're still trying to get just average citizens who are not essential workers to stay at home where it's safe until we know if there's going to be a second wave of this. Um, I think it sets a bad example, but that's, I mean, we all knew Donald Trump's personality long before he was president, right? So nothing that he says or does should shock us, quite frankly. He had, the apprentice was on air for what, 10 years? I mean, he's always been this, this person. So I'm just... I, I I don't receive it. I don't allow him to, uh, I don't take that into my emotions or into my spirit in any kind of way. It's just like, oh, Don's at it again. Seems like it. Okay. On with my day. <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, I want to talk to you directly about violence in Baltimore City. You've had a, a, just an unimaginable story. You lost your husband to violence in 2007 that left you a single mom, left your son without a father. Your personal anguish didn't stop there. You also lost a fiance and you lost lost your brother. Um, But you haven't yet gotten justice with respect to your husband. There has been no trial yet. The person who murdered your husband 
Uh, he's not going to be tried in federal drug ch- on federal drug charges until he finishes, I guess, his time in state prison um, for, what, distributing narcotics? He's, he's serving federal drug time now. Um, oh. And he won't be tried in Maryland for the murder until he finishes that. So the feds decided that selling drugs across state lines um, was more of a pressing issue than murdering my husband. Um, and so I believe he gets released from federal custody in 2023. Um, I really don't even follow it anymore because one of the, the most devastating parts about that is that he was a friend of my husband's and they were out together and they just had too much to drink and a joke got taken the wrong way and he stabbed him and it hit an artery and he bled out before they could get him to the hospital. It wasn't, I mean, and from what I'm not allowed to communicate with him because there is no statute of limitations for murder and he will be tried. So I'm considered the victim. But um, I do know from mutual friends, he tried to commit suicide like three times um, very early in his sentence from the guilt of knowing that he killed my husband. Um, And I think two years ago, in just the most insane irony, his youngest son killed his oldest son in the exact same way that he killed my husband. And they were very young when um, he was arrested 13 years ago. And um, I'm sure he feels, you know, I, my son lost his dad, but they, they lost their dad too. Um, and I, I just can't imagine what his wife is going through. You know, I just keep her in my prayers because at the end of the day, I know he didn't mean to kill him. Um, and I am, you know, I, I believe in God. I, I'm a praying person. I, I forgave him years ago. I don't have um, any ill will towards him or his family. I, I mean, that's that's a an incredible show of grace uh, and forgiveness. I don't know if I were in your position that I could have done that. And I imagine this awful, tragic experience must have been profoundly gut-wrenching and a moment in your life that was pivotal, that changed how you think and how you feel about uh, your city and how you approach violence. What, what was the impact of these incidents that occurred in your life? How did it shape you? Well, you know, I always tell people Baltimore has given me as much as it's taken from me. Um, and that's like, that's the best way that I can put it. I, what I try to do is to keep at the forefront, the good memories and the good times um, and make sure that I'm sharing them with my son. Cause he was only four at the time. He's 17. Now he doesn't really remember his dad. Um, and, and just making sure that he knows that he loved him. Um, you know, uh, that he would be really proud of him. And then it's so funny how kids inherently have traits of their parents, even if they're not around. He's so much like his dad <laughs> that it's funny to me at times. It's like, he'll, it's just like, you have no idea why I'm laughing at you, but I'm laughing at you because I am looking at David, but it's not David. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've, I've been very, one of the sad things is being from Baltimore, you're not immune to violence, right? Unless you live a very, very privileged and uh, sheltered life. So I've been burying friends since I was 12. I mean, I think the my very first memory of a friend being killed, uh, a friend of mine, was he was kidnapped off of the corner of Edmondson and Bentlow <clears throat> in front of my aunt's house. Um, he was found a week later. 
uh, in a, hanging from a tree and lit on fire in Lincoln Park. And I was 12. Um, and so, you know, when it when the tragedy started to hit home and under my roof, it was jarring. But I'm just like, there's so much death and destruction around me um, so already that you just become numb to it to an extent. And you just unfortunately don't even feel it the same anymore. Kylan, what do you think are the root causes of violence in a city like Baltimore? You go out of your way to say that you don't have a crime plan, but you say that you want to work with local officials and the state's attorney to mitigate this escalating crime issue. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so I, I, I made it a point to stress the fact that I didn't have a crime plan because everybody had one, right? And it just seemed really, really cliche. Right. And my public safety plan had been on my website since August. Uh, so uh, the root causes, first and foremost, are a, a culmination of things. There's trauma from living in communities that are intentionally under-resourced and undeveloped, uh, as well as, like I said, just being in proximity to such violence makes you kind of desensitized to it. And once you stop feeling your own humanity, it's that much easier to not see humanity in anyone else and not think twice about taking a life. And we've been experiencing this in our communities for 40 years. So this is generations of, of traumatized people. Um, couple that with self-medicating, mental health issues, as well as um, substance abuse. And this is what you get. Uh, I don't believe there's anyone taking a life that is 100% of their faculties, right? They, they have experienced something. Um, children that grow up in homes with domestic violence tend to either be abusers or end up in abusive relationships. You become a product of your environment. It's not just with, um, with killing people, it's any kind of violence and trauma. You will either become the person who is the abuser to feel like you're taking your power back or you find yourself susceptible to being abusive, other abusive and harmful situations. Yeah. Uh, but my plan is to understand that holistically, right? And I want to change the way that we work with the Baltimore City Fire Department, who I feel are treated like the stepchildren of BPD, um, embed social workers from the University of Maryland School of Social Work in with them, and just start re responding on the ground in these moments differently than we do. Because we can't arrest our way and mandatory minimum our way out of this problem. This is not, we don't have a, a prison system that's really um, about rehabbing people, right? It's just, it's really just punitive and, and punishment. But if we can begin to rebuild people's spirits, I do believe it'll have a different impact um, on the violence altogether. I talked to Mayor, <laughs> Mayor, uh, former Mayor Sheila Dixon yesterday in an interview, and we talked about the, the issues of recidivism. We talked about her predecessor when she became mayor, Martin O'Malley's policies. And she said, as a council, we urged him to back off some of those policies. The uh, could basically arrest everyone. It was the tough on crime approach. And it turned out that, of course, when Governor O'Malley ran for president of the United States uh, last term or last session, what is it, 2014? 16. Or 16. Sorry, he was uh, he was busy running for governor when he was uh, still governor, or rather, running for president when he was still governor. 
he got hit on that pretty hard. And yeah, yeah, he he did. And that was a a big setback, I think, for his campaign. Now, look, you only got two percent. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, right before his campaign, 2015 happens. Freddie Gray's killed. The uprising happens and the whole world is now watching Baltimore, you know, and I remember him doing a CNN interview um, from the roof of some building in West Baltimore and being offended that he was being referenced um, or in, in in what this is happening in these communities with people of color and um, the police department. I was just like the arrogance and the audacity of it all, as if you didn't bring Ed Norris here, <laughs> as if this didn't happen, as if the ACLU did not sue you for the 100,000 plus arrests that you made that gave innocent people criminal records that then went on to like keep them from being able to get employment and other things and all of the things that happen once you interfere or have a interaction with the social justice, with the political, not political, Sorry, um, the criminal justice system. I mean, he was just, he was he was acting as this, and none of it ever happened. Um, and so that, I think that the uprising happened, saved us all from uh, a president or a vice president on Maui, thankfully. Uh, I think that would have been um, really, really bad, really bad. But it's weird to me, and you know, I have a lot of respect for former Mayor Dixon um, as a person, but it's always weird to me when she tries to separate herself from him when she continued those same policies in BPD and touts um, the, the crime rate as one of her accomplishments during her term when much of the stuff was still going on. Well, I mean, that's a, a fair question. And if she is the Democratic nominee for mayor, You'll have an opportunity to perhaps face off with against her if you are nominated as the Republican. I want to talk to you about the police department, a big issue inside of Baltimore city government. Some of your opponents, both Democrat and Republican, have spoken about a culture of corruption inside of the Baltimore city police department. Let's talk about that. What do you say? Um, they're right. Uh, you know, so there's a couple of things. Um, there's 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 corruption. There's also racism. There's also sexism. Um, but during my time with the fellowship that I did with BPD and the International Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, I really got to spend a lot more time than I usually do embedded with these officers. And and what I came to find out is that it's kind of like a fraternity, right? They, there's a, there's the, the blue wall is just anybody that wears a badge. But just like you have different chapters in the sorority or fraternity, there's different pockets of friendships, of, of cliques, um, also inside of the department. Uh, and because I have family members that are law enforcement in other parts of the country, I've never been one of those like anti-police people because I know people that wear the badge of honor and integrity and respect. My best friend is a Baltimore City police officer. Um, I have a lot of friends in the department. And so I always try to approach it when trying to build a bridge between the department and community with, remember that they're people too. Like this is their job. We don't define people by their profession um, when they are a dentist or, you know, or a lawyer. But the moment that you become a police officer, it's just assumed 
that you have that you only want to do bad things. You know, we don't give anybody the benefit of the doubt that might actually be like a a major Mo Brown who is from West Baltimore and wants to improve her community. You know, so the culture leadership comes from the top down. Um, Firing of Kevin Davis was doing a lot that he um, to improve it. Um, I'm really thankful for the time that he was here, for him allowing me to support the work he was doing and making uh, making a space for me at the table to be heard um, on behalf of community. Um, when he was fired, I, I was also and still am very good friends with um, former Commissioner D'Souza. Uh, he was going to continue those things. Um, and then we saw how short-lived his tenure was. And then the worst part was when we just didn't have a commissioner, right? When Tawu became interim commissioner, morale inside of the department was so low. Like, he went into the building and it was like a graveyard. He wasn't, he, they didn't trust him because he was former DEA, he wasn't BPD. Um, so they felt like he was an outsider. And so I guess and he felt like he was an outlier as well. And those nine months were rough. Um, Judge Bernard was not pleased <laughs> when we went to court. Um, and Fitzgerald was a ter- terrible pick. I'm glad that um, Brandon and Jack uh, and those guys went down to Texas and did that their due diligence on him. And we really did have high hopes for Harrison uh, when he got here. Uh, however, when he got here, the things that we hoped are not what transpired. And so, I mean, I don't think we can change the culture and department until we can get some steady and accountable leadership that has a real vision um, for the city as well as the department. That's an excellent point, uh, Catalina. And I am interested to hear about your perspective with respect to the strained relationship between the FOP and the state's attorney's office. They've been at each other for some time now as a mayor you would have the opportunity to cultivate a relationship it seems like you have a good relationship with the police but what about the state's attorney's office can you bridge this relationship back to functioning i'm going to try right so it was very well known that i did not support marilyn mosby in her first run uh, i supported russell Neverdon, but when she ran for re-election I did support her, and the reason that I explained to people that I did was the fact that we were about to have a new mayor, 50% of the council was getting ready to be new, and we needed some continuity in leadership, right? There was a new commissioner, new mayor. It was just too much moving moving parts to just have everybody be new and starting over from scratch with a learning curve. Um, and I don't regret that decision, but because of that, uh, because I went to high school with her husband. I didn't really know her. Um, but we've developed a rapport that, and enough res- mutual respect, both of us being women in politics and moms, um, that I believe I can be the bridge to, to repair that. I've been trying for months, maybe even a year now. Well, no, how long has Mike Mancuso been president of the FOP? Because I never, I never had any desire to meet with Gene Ryan. But I have been trying to get a meeting with um, the current FOP president and and just have a conversation about the importance of language um, and delivery and how I understand it's your job to stick up for your guys, but sometimes you make bad situations worse with your tweets. Uh, they, the FOP's Twitter account kind of reminds me of Donald Trump's. It's like, 
And once you put that kind of stuff out there, you know, you can't take it back. Um, and so I really want to have a conversation. I feel like they feel left out because they're not actually a part of the consent decree, but it affects the police. And I think the very early on, they should have been brought to the table and allowed to feel like they were included in the changes and policy and things that were being made, even if it was just symbolic and, and nobody listened to anything that they said. Uh, if you have kids, you know you can't do something with one of them and leave the other one out or it's a big catastrophe. And like that's what I see all of these different, you know, outbursts as that they, they, they just feel left out of something they feel like they should be a part of. And so I'm trying. I'm trying to build those bridges now, even before being there. And I would continue to do so if I wasn't elected, right? Because I still live here, I still care, and I want to see all of us and all of this get better. Catalina, I think that you have a, a, just a unique perspective about so much in the city. And I've talked to some of the other candidates on the Democratic side. Everybody brings something really unique to this race. And on the Democrat side, they're battling it out. They're talking about big issues. And they seem to believe that whomever wins the Democratic primary will ultimately become mayor. I, I don't I don't know how to, to shape that. I mean, conventional wisdom says yes and there's another conventional there's other conventional wisdom that says it's so in flux that politics are so different today we don't know how races are going to turn out and where i'm going with this is that the democrats seem i'd say somewhat unified and within their party structure however and i'm talking about on the state level however on the republican side in the state of maryland there is some dysfunction occurring inside of the state party between the first and second vice chair and the third vice chair. And I should mention Brandon Cooper, the first vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party, Dr. Tony Campbell, the second vice chair, who also serves as the Republican chaplain for the state party. They are in a battle with the chairman, Dirk Hare, at this time over what seems to be some small differences backing uh, a certain candidate over another for a national committee woman race. And if you ask 100 Marylanders on the street about what a Republican national committee woman does, I'd say 99 and a half won't be able to tell you what it is that they do. And recently, you let me back up. In state party politics, the Republican chair and Republican central committees that govern the Baltimore City Central Committee they're not expected to take sides in a contested primary. That's typical. That's in the rules. However, you had a good relationship with Chairman Dirk Hare for a bit of time. You had texted with him. You've talked to him. What happened? Yeah. What, what happened recently that may have shifted your perspective about the chairman of the Maryland Republican Party, Dirk Hare? So uh, I, I didn't know him when I filed. He reached out. We met. Um, he told me that um, he was really in support of my race, but that, that he couldn't get involved in my primary. My, who was considered my main opponent of the other candidates is the chair of the Central Committee, um, Shannon Wright. So you know, he'd been sending me information about where to get cost-effective mailers and lit done. His wife is on the Anne Arundel County Council, um, and so he helped on her race. And I really thought we 
had a good rapport, right? And then April, the there was a protest in Annapolis to for the governor to reopen the state, right? And my friend, Lynn Foxwell, who is Comptroller Peter Franchot's chief of staff. I know I mean, Lynn. If you know Lynn, Lynn, it's not like Lynn isn't always making a joke, isn't always witty and quippy, right? So, you know, he said something like, let natural selection do its work or something like that. Darwin, I don't even remember what he said, but it was funny. I think I laughed at it and kept going. And then the next thing I know, I'm reading a WBAL story where Dirk was calling for Lynn to be fired. And, I, you know, before I took it, publicly i text them and was like you're completely off base with this like uh, why is this the fight you want to pick because the footage that i saw of the protest there were numerous people with impeach hogan signs and so in my mind if you are the the chair of the state party and this is the party that our governor belongs to you can't side with people against him why well, wouldn't i i wouldn't i don't think that that's appropriate um he pushed back. He he still agreed with his perspective um, in terms of Lynn. And we never spoke again, spoke a text again. And then earlier this week, um, and though I can't, I haven't corroborated, I'm still working on it, but I was I was given some information by someone that said that um, he was paying for, not with state party funds, but paying for the robocalls of my opponent um, as a result. So doing the complete opposite of what he said and now involving himself in my primary. And, you know, I, I did some calls and some texts and asked around. It's not the only primary that he's involved himself in, apparently, um, that's contested. And it seemed to stem from what you were talking about earlier about this division between support for Nicoly and support for Diana. Now, I don't know Diana, right, which is who Brandon and Tony were backing. I've known Nicoly for over a decade because we do square off together. But I didn't have a dog in the race either way because I can't vote. I'm not a central committee member. Um, so, you know, to, to, to side with my opponent, oh, to, and Nicoly was going to win anyway, from what I understand. Like, it was not even close. Um, so I, I reached out to Nicoly um, and asked her if she heard anything about this. You know, and she immediately went to, oh, Brandon must have told you that. You can't believe anything that he said. I'm like, well, actually, this didn't come from Brandon. Um, but, you know, so that response and, and some other responses that were a little sketchy lead me to believe that this, that this information I received could be true. But what God has for me is for me, Ryan. Um, dirt, politics is dirty. I knew that. Uh, I've been in this game for 20 years. I'm not angry. Um, you know, it, clearly I look like a threat to them if you have to go through these measures to try and beat me. Yeah. I raised no money, <laughs> right? I didn't even hold a fundraiser before outside was shut down. And I did no fundraising during COVID because I thought it was wrong in a time of economic instability to be asking people for money. Um, so we've never even had a thousand dollars in the bank. So if you're, you're afraid of the fact that I resonate with people, that people know me and trust me and I have an actual plan and understanding of policy, unlike my opponents. Um, I just take that as a compliment at this point. <laughs> Do you have, or rather, have you talked to 
Shannon Wright, the chairwoman of the Baltimore City Republican Central Committee, who's also a pastor. Have you had an opportunity to talk to her and ask her directly, do, is Chairman Hare funding your robocalls? No, because I don't believe she'd tell me the truth anyway. Okay. You know, Shannon ran for council president in 2016. Um, my dad's on the Central Committee with her. And she'd asked him to connect us for me to help her with her race. Um, I think at the time she had only been in Baltimore for about a year at that point, maybe two. Um, she's not from here, she's from New Jersey. Um, and because I was working behind the scenes, but really hard on Joshua Harris's mayoral race, I never really got a chance to connect with it. Plus, nobody was beating Jack, right? You know, Jack would get, Jack had more votes as council president the, the mayor did at times, right? When you go back and look at the numbers, he was loved. So it just was an uphill battle. She didn't have any money to pay me. And I was already working on a race. And, you know, before I announced in this race, I reached out to her and asked her to consider running for council president again and us working together. And she absolutely refused. Um, and, and, and from that point forward, it's been a contentious relationship. Um, there's been a lot of lies told to people about me. The, the very early rumor was that Jack Young had called her and asked her not to run against me because he was old friends with my dad. Um, and Jack doesn't even have her number. <laughs> um, another another lie, there's been so, oh, then there's the one that I'm not really a Republican. I'm a Democratic plant to sabotage her campaign. I've never been a Democrat in my life. Um, and let, just last night, you know, she she made a remark about my only being a Republican because it's the path of least resistance um, in my race. And my resume with the Republican Party and my input and my work with the Republican Party, especially here in Baltimore, but also around the state, exceeds hers by decades, <laughs> you know? So it's just, at what point do you just like, just start laughing? <laughs> it has been suggested by party leaders, central committee chairman on a call that I was invited to by multiple people in the party last week that chairman Dirk Hare, who is a, a white guy from Anne Arundel County and a, a wealthy lawyer that he is intentionally purging black Republicans from the state party. What say you? Um, that's what I'm hearing too. It, so we've always had, not always had, 2010, if you remember, when Bob Ehrlich came back to run, he almost didn't win his primary, right? He, had, he ran against Brian Kelly. Sarah Palin came to Maryland and endorsed Brian Kelly over Bob Ehrlich. Ever since the immersion of the Tea Party after the election of Barack Obama, have we had this shift and or rift in the party between the uber conservative and far, far right and the moderates. Um, and you, you saw it. You saw Bob getting pushed further to the right than he ever really was. Um, I think for black Republicans, we've never been far right. Uh, we've always been more modern and more concerned with fiscal accountability uh, and conservative values like family. But this has been going on for a decade. And so now 
you have someone who wants to rise in the party. Um, people get really caught up on these titles that really mean nothing to the average person on the street, but they care. Um, and he's unable, he wants to create what it looks to me is that he wants to create an atmosphere with, with that he can control. And he couldn't do that with Brandon and Tony. And uh, it's, it's just unfortunate because there's so many things that stay. And we have the opportunity to make history is that this should not be what's happening in my party right now. And yet it is. Yeah. In 2010, uh, a, a guy by the name of Brian Murphy ran against Bob Ehrlich and Bob got 80.22% and Brian got 19.78% out of a total votes of 23,175 Republicans who voted in that primary. But to your point, I think that party leaders in the Maryland Republican Party have expressed serious concern in the way that Chairman Hare has conducted himself, the way that he has followed very closely the president's orders through David Bossie, who is the national committee man for the state Republican Party. And I know that people who are listening, they're saying, well, so what? what I, don't, I don't care about this. But there is still a point that you are a, a, a prominent African-American female running in the Republican Party. And for someone to, and as you say, could be cutting, it could be cutting into your race or interfering in your race, that seems to me to be problematic. And whether or not Shannon Wright is the recipient of Dirk Hare's funding, the problem is, is that they should be worried about, as a party, about a general election. And we know that the Maryland Republican Party is lacking in funds. It is lacking in stature. The governor does not take seriously the Maryland Republican Party. He basically ignores him. Dirk Hare is all but outwaged a war on the governor, even though it's behind closed doors. The governor's aware of this. He understands it. And that's why it seemingly matters that uh, this party is seems it matters that it's imploding pretty much from the inside. So, you know, I, and people kept, people kept asking me, you know, what my relationship with the party was like. You know, we lost inside of the Central Committee a number of those individuals, David Blumberg, my dad, um, Frankie Powell. They took jobs inside of the Ehrlich administration. So there was a vacuum in the Central Committee that goes back 17 years now. Right. I've never said that I had a great relationship with the party as it stands. What I had was a relationship with the administration. And that's because Lieutenant Governor Rutherford had been Secretary of DGS under former Governor Ehrlich. And my job that I got was in the same building. And I learned a lot about the procurement process from him um, and things of that nature. And so we've had this relationship for 17 years now. Um, and I do believe because of how dysfunctional the state party is, right? Um, that that's in fact why Governor Hogan started Change Maryland. He built his own infrastructure around his campaign because I don't think that he believed that the party had the capacity to, to do what was necessary to win. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that that is not highlighted as often as it should be that Governor Hogan, who is a you could call him a community organizer in a sense because of his grassroots effort, he built a fantastic organization, an organization inside of a state party that was 
largely, I don't call it dysfunctional, but it was not up to par. He built his own credible organization and beat a guy named Anthony Brown, who by all accounts was hand over fist, was supposed to win that 2014 race. I mean, come on, every pundit out there thought that Hogan was going to lose that race. And he shocked the nation. Except for me. Except for me. Well, it, that's good. But they thought that he was going to lose. And it well, was. So, I, so, okay, in 2014, I actually ran field for Doug Gansler in the primary, in the Democratic primary. Right. I never wanted Anthony Brown to be our governor. Um, and I would, would work adamantly with anyone to make sure that that didn't happen. Um, Doug loses his primary, and then I go and a friend of my, a good friend of mine, who's actually my campaign manager now, had my old job from the early campaign and was Baltimore City Field Director for Hogan. And so I just rolled right into that campaign. But the reason that, aside from Anthony Brown being a, a terribly flawed and arrogant candidate, um, the reason that I always projected that Hogan would win once he won his primary, because it, it, it was thought that he wasn't going to win his primary. I mean, you got to remember the guy David Craig out of Hartford County had never lost a race that he'd run in before. Um, and so until that stuff comes out, came out about him and it kind of sank him, Hogan wasn't even the front runner in that race. Um, but Maryland has never elected a lieutenant governor to be governor in its history. Um, and so... You know, one of the, reasons, the things aside from the numbers that I look at when I'm wearing my pundit hat and doing my analysis is just the history. Like, has it ever happened? What were the circumstances under which it occurred? And we've never done it. And you, you couple that with a terribly run race, the arrogance to believe it was a sure win and not campaigning. Uh, and now we have a governor that I'm, I'm proud of and thankful for who shares my same position on the president. You know? <laughs> so. Well, I, I, I get it. Um, I want to talk about education and you have in your campaign discussed the idea. Let's stop politicizing children. Let's you've called out Annapolis for doing so. Catalina, mm -hmm. you have taken on the Annapolis political machine just like your your dear friend Len Foxwell has done for what twenty some years, and working yes. with Comptroller Francho, is there a political party that can provide air conditioning and heat to to failing schools? Is there a political party who can step it up and make necessary structural changes to schools, or is it people who want to make sure that part that these kids get what they need because i don't see it a, a a party doing this it's just getting it done it, it's, it's no any party could do it if that was the intention right but every other year is an election year and you know i i've always been a long believer that people don't fix the things that they run on because they wouldn't have anything to run on if they did uh, especially career politicians so either party could have done it, but because the governor right now is a Republican and the majority in, in Annapolis are Democrats, we're fighting tooth and nail every step of the way for things that don't happen. I mean, if you look at, at, at Kerwin, right, in the bill, Governor Hogan had a proposal that for all intents and purposes um, was almost identical to the Democratic one. And nobody would even discuss it. it the only difference is that we weren't going to raise taxes on people. I mean, it's one of the things that he'd run on is 
very early on in his first term was lowering taxes. We had had so many taxes raised under the O'Malley-Brown administration that people were leaving, people and businesses were leaving the state. You know, but what, what frustrates me more, though, is the fact that we already didn't have heat and air conditioning when I was a kid, and I'm getting ready to turn 40. It wasn't until my godbrother, Aaron Maben, who just because of the fact that he used to play in the NFL went viral, then all of a sudden it's this big issue and Ben Jealous is trying to get him to help on his campaign. Everybody's talking about the poor children with no heat. They haven't had any heat for 30 years, Ryan. This didn't, this didn't just happen. This isn't Hogan's fault. There were Democratic governors and Democratic mayors who didn't fix this. But because the whole world saw it because of my brother's following from having been in the NFL and playing for the Jets and the, and the Bills, then now it's just like the biggest issue of Baltimore City. And I'm just like, was my childhood inferior to my children? Was Did I not deserve to have heat too? You know, you know it's, just, it's ridiculous. And, and, and as a result, we're not talking about the important things. Right. The fact that they lowered the grade for passing four times since I graduated and we're graduating functionally illiterate children. We're not talking about the fact that 15 years ago, we went to site-based budgets with no technical support for principals to, to figure out how to allocate that money. And many of whom had no budget experience whatsoever because inside the education industry, the trajectory of principal was how tenured you'd been as a teacher. So, you know, we gave pockets of money to people who didn't know how to manage it. And I don't even think they were all malicious in their mismanagement. They just didn't have the support that they needed. Those are the conversations about education we should be having. On, Not on your website. I'm sorry. Go ahead. On your website uh, at cat-bird.com, you list your issues and you talk about charter school expansion uh, with African-centered curriculums. You talk about returning the budget allocation for BCPS to North Avenue under a new structure. And you talk about teacher relief programs. Also, you discuss Project Rebuild. What is Project Rebuild, Gap? Um, so it's a, it's a um, what do you call it? It's a, it's, it's a new version of what Governor Ehrlich had. So Bob had something called Project Restart. Um, in his administration, where we took returning citizens who were coming home from jail and paired them with contractors to get the contracting skills and development skills and want a pathway to, to work um, with livable wages. Um, it's really just a rebranding of that. The, the opportunity to bring returning citizens in to do some great work for the city. Um, the 21st century school plan, I don't think all of the schools are finished for like another five years. They're doing them three and four at a time. Um, so there's an opportunity to take the schools that aren't torn down and, and create, you know, housing for the homeless, uh, any number of things. But it, it's really a job creator and utilizing the buildings that are no longer um, good for the children to be in as these different 21st century schools open up. But the teacher relief program um, I'm really proud of because of the fact that, you know, Aaron is also a teacher. That's how he went viral. Uh, a lot of my friends are teachers and I just know what they go through um, 
being pressure to pass children that aren't really passing so that the school's uh, rating doesn't change, paying for things out of pocket, the parents that want to fight the teachers because they don't like that their children aren't excelling regardless of how they behave. You know, I really just don't think we support our teachers or our firefighters the way that we should. I want to speak real here. Look, I grew up as a kid in Western Maryland in Hagerstown, Maryland. I was lucky to have... I think good public schools. They weren't amazing. Where my wife and I live now, we have two kids in Montgomery County public schools, and we're fortunate. And it is something that we can accept called privilege. We are we're lucky. We are lucky. But kids in Baltimore City, why? It's not fair that we they deserve the best public schools out there. They deserve the opportunity, just like I had. A kid from Western Maryland that was lucky enough to go to college and be able to afford that and then go off to grad school. And it's it's just education is so vitally important. And as mayor, you can take a huge presence in the education system. And it seems like the politicians fall over one another's feet and there's just politics that muddy the waters, whereas we should be talking about how we can improve our education system dig inside of the curriculum. And look, I know the governor's been, he has been hit on the Kerwin Commission and he's, he's, he's identified it as a, a tax. And we know that some of the Democrats at Annapolis weren't exactly, I want to say, honest about their intentions about not raising taxes. We found out that they had a, a sales tax scheme, that they were going to lower the sales tax, but then tax every other service uh, in the economy. Right. And it's important right. to be. It's important that people see somebody who is mayor, especially now in this critical time when the last mayor has gone to jail, when uh, there's been ethical problems plaguing the city for years. That they look to you as a leader, and they see that you, Catalina Burt, will do the right thing always. And I think that's what city voters want to hear. And forget party or partisanship or politics. Uh, and, and I know that's easy to say because, look, when the Democratic machine in the state of Maryland come to life, it is like don't get between them because they will run you over. They will just run you over. And I know that you're probably yeah. prepared for that. I am um, mostly because I'm scrappy and I like a good fight. And at least I'd be this time arguing with some people that actually know how policy works versus my primary. Um, but and, and I'm just tired of us politicizing children, right? My daughter goes to a Baltimore City public school, um, but it's a 21st century school, right? So she has heat, she has air conditioning, but that's not true for my nieces and nephews. That's not true for all of my other family members who are here in the city who have kids in these schools. and. The one thing that I, I have the most faith in that that uh, as it applies to the Democratic machine is that, that I've worked across party lines for years to accomplish certain goals. Um, and so I really I really don't foresee them trying to attack my character. Um, it's it, it's going to be a whole bunch of attacks of the party that and like associating me with Trump. Right. Because it'd be difficult for the people to attack me on anything else when there are pieces of legislation that have come from Democrats that I've supported, 
um, as it applies to returning citizens getting the right to vote back. Um, domestic violence laws that I, you know, former delegate Angela Angels at my house right now. Like, <laughs> you know, so we did that. We, we fought hard for that legislation. She lost. She didn't get that Senate seat that was um, vacated by Ulysses Curry. Um, but we worked hard, you know, and, and I've worked shoulder to shoulder with Democrats just as I have Republicans. So I don't. I don't think that it'll be as nasty as people foresee. And it really will be the way that they attack Governor Hogan. Um, but we'll see. Before we conclude, I want to end on a point of the COVID-19 response. We've heard much about city businesses, especially places like Little Italy. And was it Sergio Vital? He's been very outspoken about what he wants to to do with his business and other restaurants in Little Italy. And look, hey, my wife and I, we're huge supporters of city restaurants. We love to go into Little Italy and we love Sabatinos and Aldo's and Vaccaro's. What can you do as a leader in this race in, 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 in Baltimore City, even up to the election, what can you do to talk about reopening businesses how can you stand in support of them um you know for me a number of, of my friends are restaurant owners right so kevin brown and his husband his bill on nancy by snack that's in the micah graduate building on north avenue um i'm just encouraging people to support at this time we've already lost some businesses that are not going to open back up. Joe Square closed its doors the first week, first two weeks into the shutdown, and they're not coming back. Um, Red Emma's is not coming back. Um, I read the, yesterday the Green Turtle is sh shutting down in Fells. You know, wow. what I do is just encourage people to, you know, it's, it's a, again, it's an economic unstable time. If you're still working or able to receive, you know, an income still, that's great. Try at least once a week support a local small business. Franchises have insurance, you know. So, you know, I know my kids like Happy Meals, but I'd rather Uber Eats from a local restaurant or Postmates from a local restaurant in Little Italy, like in Amici's or, you know, Angie Seafood on Pratt Street and Fells. Um, that's my contribution personally. And I just encourage other people to do it and tag them, you know. Don't underestimate how important the tag is or the rating on a Yelp or um, on their Facebook page or something of the, along those lines. Uh, I did see Sergio's idea about closing the streets down so that they could have outdoor um, seating so that they could reopen. Um, I just think it's too soon just because in following Dr. Fauci and following how viruses work in the first place, I, I do believe there's a second wave that we should prepare for before we test the waters about what our new normal looks like. But ultimately, it's not a bad idea. I just think it's too soon. Well, fair enough. And the COVID-19 response, it will be ongoing, as you know. And if you are elected mayor, that's something that you will certainly have to put a plan in action and and quickly respond and what would be a 
a positive relationship between you and the governor, uh, that should certainly aid Baltimore City. Not that it already doesn't, because I think that Governor Hogan has worked well so far with Jack Young. And it's been an unimaginable situation in the last year and a half, given the resignation and conviction of Mayor Pugh, this uh, upcoming election. And I see today the Baltimore Sun, endorsed, the editorial board endorsed Brandon Scott for mayor. Do you, do and you, the Afro endorsed Sheila. I saw that. Do you anticipate the Baltimore Sun endorsing a Republican candidate as well in this race? I don't know. Emily um, messaged me yesterday that um, the profiles that she interviewed us in January, I believe it was, for are, uh, are going to begin to come out next week for the Republican candidates. I don't know if they will. I don't think that they will. I can't remember a time in a primary where they endorsed for both parties, maybe they have. I don't know. I don't. I can't think of one though. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't expect to get a lot of coverage from Black media for being a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sun has been really kind to me, and I think part of that is, you know, just my being a former journalist, having relationships with some of the guys that work over there, um, and just being respected by my colleagues, you know, for the work that I've done over these years and the person that I am. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't, I don't anticipate them endorsing in my primary, but I'd like the opportunity to earn their endorsement going into the general if Brandon um, doesn't win. Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, I really appreciate your straightforward responses, and I appreciate your time today, especially. Sorry we couldn't get that Facebook live feed, but this will be displayed. You'll have a copy ASAP. I'm going to send you a a copy of the video, and you can share all about your social media, and I'm going to publish it out on my site, and I've been fortunate because I've been getting a lot of hits over in Baltimore City. They're following a minordetail.com, and they're, they're watching, and I appreciate your transparency on the issues. It's, it's important that we have these important policy discussions, and I love Baltimore. I, I wasn't born and raised there, but as a lifelong Marylander, it's the economic engine. It's the hub of our entire state, and we all have to pitch in and be inclusive and help a great city um, reestablish its prominence uh, in the country. It's a great American city, and I know that we have just so much a promise um, as Marylanders to to pitch in and help the city of Baltimore. So um, your social media, go ahead and plug that. Where can people find more about you? Uh, I'm myself on all platforms, so it's just at Catalina Bird on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. My page is public because um, I'm over the friend limit. So you can see anything that I post, you can comment. Um, my website is bird, B-Y-R-D, the number four, Baltimore.com. We redid it and it, revamped, it like redirects to the one that you read, but either one will take you to what you're looking at. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always on Twitter, which sometimes gets me in trouble. Uh, <laughs> uh, I tell people all the time I act up more on Twitter because my mom's not on there. And like she is on my Facebook and Instagram. So yeah, I get a little feisty on Twitter, but I I like to think I'm approachable. Um, If there's a question or, you know, about an issue or why I supported um, something that I did in my past. Uh, I I think one of the downsides to having been on radio and TV for so long in this pundit capacity 
as people think I'm just always trying to like have a fight. They don't they don't know that I actually have a great sense of humor and I'm a nice person and I like to laugh and crack jokes. Um, it's like one of the very first things I remember people saying after I started doing square offs, like, I had no idea you'd be so nice. Like you're like then we're not debating anything. <laughs> but yeah, I appreciate you um making this opportunity for me today, Ryan. I really do. Um well, like I, people, I thank you for well, that. The Republicans. <laughs> well, I thank you for that, and I'm glad that we had an opportunity to talk about this race. I want to be fair and get as many candidates, Democrat or Republican, and maybe after last night's interesting debate, I could get some. <laughs> I could get some of your opponents. I just want to make sure that I don't have any cigarettes on me uh, that I could whip out and, you know, stoke up during a. Or, you want something stronger than that water as you do, right? <laughs> I mean, maybe I could I could do a live session. Maybe we could do a live session of Zoom, and we could go through a drive-through. Uh, <laughs> now I'm just being funny. Oh, but but it happened. These all of these things actually happened. Uh, it makes for uh, a good debate. I'm sure it was interesting to you when you saw that, and I. I, you know what? I've seen stranger things in my career. I'm sure you have too, but uh, now you have a story to tell, and uh, I'm glad that you have a good sense of humor, and that is so important, is to keep... That has to be some relief during this uh, this crazy times, these crazy times that we are living in. So, Catalina Bird, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you. Thank you for running for the city of Baltimore. Thanks for stepping up and being a leader. Thank you. All right. You have a good day. You too. Okay. I think we're good. We did it. We did it. I'm going to get you this video. Um, that was good. What did you think? I had fun. These Zoom interviews are fun. Um, people, have tend, people tend to let loose during these, and I think it's because we're all stir-crazy. And, uh, you know, when I talked to TJ, he was very transparent. I mean, he really – he had a he, – he said a lot that was – informative and you know sheila was a little reserved but that's i don't know sheila but she, you know, she's, sheila i mean she's not gonna she's not gonna be open and transparent if she doesn't know you yeah you know she, she's gonna always be in candidate mode and so i think you know probably the thing that makes my dad the most frustrated with me is i don't have a candidate mode right <laughs> <laughs> i'm cat y'all know me this you know so like the debates and the forums, it was just like, that's the closest to a candidate mode that I can get, is just to have one some pearls and some decorum and answer the questions directly. Um, but it's really hard to have a conversation about policy on a certain level, people who have no understanding of how it works at all. You know, it's just like, at some point last night, I just checked out. Like, I don't even think we understand it. Like, when I'm referencing Perth, do they even know who they are, what their connection is to city, the, the consent decree, why the surveillance planning is being beta tested here? Like, like, I'm up here and they're down here and it's just like, at some point you begin to feel like an intellectual bully. Mm. And I just like, I just, I just checked out at some point. <laughs> and my friend texted me and was like, please fix your face. I was in the comments, like, is it nine o'clock yet? Just please tell me it's nine o'clock. My coffee got cold. I don't want to be here anymore. <laughs> is, that, 
How long was it? An hour? An hour and a half. It started at 7.30 almost until 9. Oh, that's a long time. Yeah, because it was, and it was late because it was following the Central Committee meeting. Oh, that'd be fun. Well, listen, if anything transpires on Dirk, this will be, this is a great story that I can follow up on the, on the site to write about. And since I, that's why it was crucial that we do this discussion first. You saw things how played how they played out during the debate. I want to go back and watch it thoroughly because I, I caught bits and pieces of it. But uh, Dirk won't respond, and uh, he no, and he won't respond to Kim either. So Kim emailed him. Oh, when I found out, right, and she asked him directly about. It, well, it's the state party than a position about the ballots that weren't counted or went missing in her race. And he hasn't responded on either. Um, so, you know, I haven't reached out to him directly because I don't believe he'll tell the truth. And clearly he's defensive, as Nicolay was, about whatever transpired in this convention. Yeah. Um, but I did text the lieutenant governor and let him know what was going on. He said that he wasn't to be he wasn't supposed to be involved in a primary. Um and I just asked him, you know, if he could look into it. So I do trust, I do trust Boyd. Like I said, I've known him 17 years. So if he is able to corroborate anything, he'll let me know. I do believe that. Yeah, Boyd's a stand-up guy. He's, and he'll probably be the, the nominee in, in 2022. Well, see, that's the thing about Dirt. When we first met, that was what made me think that we were, like, going to build a rapport is because he said that he was going to work with Boyd and that they really wanted him to be the nominee in 2022. And, you know, he wanted to make sure, help him become the governor. And I'm like, well, you know, my race is a great launch pad to that. I can come in, kind of re help rebrand and rebuild the party, some in the city, get some of these crazy people off the central committee and get some new blood in there and have 18 months in my first time my first 18 months to kind of like, you know, build some momentum so that we can deliver the 15% necessary to win the state in 2022. And he said it was a great plan. And that was what we were communicating. Yeah. And it turns out he's a liar. So even if you texted him today, you don't think he'd respond. <laughs> and then like what Brent told me is that like, I don't think that he would, or he, or I think he'd lie. I really do. At this point, I think he'd lie. Um, but because now I just feel like he's been lying to me all along that he never really, you know, was going to help oh, um, or support my, or stay out of it clearly. Because what Brandon said was that, you know, they're making it a, a race thing. And so Shannon is his like one black friend. So yeah. she's like the person who's like, oh, Dirk's not racist because he supports me. And I just, it's just, it's all madness. It's lunacy. Yeah. <laughs> it is well i'll let you get back to your day i appreciate your time seriously uh text call uh send me an inbox message i'm gonna get you the video um i'm gonna i'm just gonna go quickly edit it and then i'll get it over to you and can you edit the part where my wig was sliding and i had to pull my bangs back there because my hair was getting ready to fall i didn't even notice i did it very subtly i noticed you didn't say anything <laughs> See, I I let you keep going. <laughs> I, mean, I looked at the camera at one point and I was like, but my bangs are like way back in my way. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. You'll see it when you go back. <laughs> what? 
Sorry, that's funny. That is funny. I'm glad you have a good sense of humor. So, well, all right. Outside opens back up. Let's have a drink sometime, me, you, and Len. It'd be great. I'd love to. That'd be wonderful. So, thank you so much, Kat. I appreciate your You're time. Welcome. You take it easy. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Hello, it's Ryan again. Thank you for listening. Now for a couple of minor housekeeping details. You can subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast using iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or virtually any available podcast directory. You can also drop us a nice review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it. Visit a minor detail on Facebook.com slash a minor detail and follow us on Twitter. That is at a minor detail. Remember, that's minor with an E. Head on over to a minor detail.com and sign up for our morning newsletter. Would you like to advertise with us? Our growing audience would love to hear from you. Send me an email at ryan at a minor detail.com and let's talk. You all are a great audience. Until next time, that's the story.